You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio station. And today we're going to go to uh, Careers for Women in Trades, which is a big expo coming up, March the 1st. We're going to talk to uh, Naomi Crystal Hodgson about the upcoming Newcastle Environment Camp, 14th of April to the 17th of April. Big deal. Uh, This is the week that was... Heaven's back. Uh, you might have heard that uh, Palestinians are feeling the brunt at the moment. Uh, there's a general strike in the West Bank. Uh, there was a, a, um, a general strike on the West Bank on Thursday after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and injured nearly 500 in a military raid in the city of Nablus. So this time... Uh, So far this year, Israel has killed at least 65 Palestinians, including 13 children, drawing concern and criticism from supranational actors, including the UN and Amnesty International. And in Australia, you may have heard that uh, Zionists in Australia have been doing their bit, pulling their oar. They've made... uh, uh, it unpleasant for two important uh, Palestinian authors over in uh, the Adelaide Writers' Festival running a campaign against them. Uh, the uh, the um, uh, organisers of the event have uh, held firm, but uh, for some reason or other the uh, Premier has weighed in and uh, said that he won't go to the events and uh, a... Um, a particular, um, uh, uh, um, what is it, uh, person who puts a sponsor is withdrawn. However, uh, there's other other signs of uh, local action on this uh, front. At SBS, you might have heard that uh, um, journalist Esma Al-Ghabli has been suspended uh pending investigation for a tweet that apparently was aired 10 years ago uh, with, uh, uh, you know, surrounding uh, uh, concerns about uh, anti-Semitism. And uh, even the universities have weighed in by uh, changing their uh, definition of uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, and uh, later on we'll follow that up. So, But today we're going to be speaking to Dr Randa Abdel-Fadar, who's an author and researcher who's uh, 
uh, going to talk to us around the issues that are involved in uh, what's going on for the Palestinians, but particularly how uh, insidious is the um, Zionist moves within the Australian cultural uh, landscape. We're going to follow that with uh, a a little chat with uh, Ralph Edwards, who's been, uh, who's from a former CFMEU uh, official, but uh, is now retired. And uh, of course, Ralph doesn't, uh, 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 you know, can't sit still. If you've ever ever met Ralph, he can't sit still. He's in the uh, process of uh, documenting. Uh, the voices of the industry, uh, the construction industry, uh, with a podcast called Creatures of the Industry. And uh, we're going to catch up with him about this podcast and uh, not only his experience, but also how uh, much uh, he's been learning from his past mates. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis. Full program online slf.org.au The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party March 5th from 12pm featuring eight pop-up stages and performances by NAM favourites Cable Ties, Kira Peru, Black Jesus Experience, at Jack Kwai, Pinch Points, Mindy Men Wang, June Jones, Georgia State Line, and heaps more. Plus, great food, markets, community stalls, and parties happening at venues all along Sydney Road. More info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Presented by Mary Beck City Council, a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR. And it's like I get the cobwebs out of my brain and uh, enjoy. And also the uh, phenomenally hot weather and difficult to sleep sort of nights that we've been having. I know some people just love it because it is summer, but uh, it's, I wouldn't, it would be kind of good if we could actually get used to what the weather is going to be like. <laughs> it changes so much and, uh, causes uh, people to get cold. <laughs> but anyway, by the by, um, before we do get on with the program, uh, I just there were a couple of things that uh, crossed my uh, consciousness this week that just struck me as being an ex- uh, a reason for why the big end of town really needs uh, a slapping. Um, you must have caught up with the uh, Qantas uh, $1 billion profit, uh, the picture of... Uh, uh, the um, executives from Qantas all in a line getting uh, photographed by uh, 
the uh, mainstream media you should have seen their fa- their eyes they were they looked like they'd been on a um, cocaine binge it was so they were so shiny and bright um, I'm not saying they were I'm just saying that it was uh, almost freaky to see them because of course that one billion dollar profit is was on the back of workers and service to customers now if it's not a clear sign that uh, the big end of town is only interested in uh, uh, investors, shareholders, and their profits. That should be a that we witnessed a full event, the full event on that press conference day when we saw those Qantas executives. Um, people should not forget that it's all about class and it's all about money uh, and power when it comes to uh, the big end of town. They are not interested in almost anything else. But anyway, that's just a personal opinion. And the other thing that really struck me that uh, was uh, just gobsmacking, it may not have entered your consciousness yet, but uh, Democracy uh, Now! has uh, just reported that uh, in New York, we're talking New York, right, the uh, the uh, peak city of the capitalist states, uh, environmental groups and community members are sounding the alarm after Holtec International, the owner of the decommissioned Indian Point nuclear facility, said it plans to dump some one million gallons of radioactive water into the Hudson River as soon as August. Now let that sink in. They're going to dump nuclear waste into the Hudson River, which flows through New York. (laughs) So, you know, if you thought that they only like to do things in um, faraway places like like Woodside off the uh, coastline of uh, Western Australia uh, when um, the majority eyes don't see it, uh, you're wrong. (laughs) <laughs> they are actually in there full on, which uh, just says that they have absolutely no shame and uh, don't care. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're going to get a blast from the past. I can't figure out what's wrong with my
up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore W-I-T. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Courtney Mum who's a Project Officer Careers for Women in Trades from the AMWU here on the line. G'day Courtney, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thanks. How about you? I'm good, I'm good. It's been so hot and um, I haven't been sleeping so well because of it, but I'm here, I'm here. What about you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel you. 35 yesterday, it was was a bit hot in the car all day. (laughs) Now tell us, um, there's been, um, as the announcement said, the the, uh, level of women deciding to go into uh, trades is still low, even though there's been a push for some time to uh, find it attractive. What are the barriers, do you think? Yes, so we know that women make up just 2% of the non-traditional trades at the moment, um, and that figure is much lower, as you can imagine, for the manufacturing trades as well. Some of the barriers, I guess, um, to be brutally honest, the amount of sexual harassment in these sorts of male-dominated industries um, is a real turn-off for women. 
even just um, a lack of employer understanding of the things that women will need in work sites like female toilets, um, which is just absolutely amazing that um, you know this sort of stuff's still going on in 2023. Um, but also just that lack of exposure in schools um, and for mature age women to even you know consider the trades as an option. That's something we've been really trying to target through the project. Um, so the Women in Trades project has been running, you know, try trade days, networking forums. We've been providing workshops, all that sort of stuff, so that women know that the trades are actually an option for them. Yeah, yeah because uh, as you point out, there is a, a very high-level skill set that is involved in a range of trades, and the idea that uh, half the population or more than half the population won't have people in it who who really are set on fire by the idea of applying mental and hand uh, manual skills in a process that uh, is what uh, trades are about. I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting job. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's such a rewarding career. You know, you can get really well paying jobs. Um, you can get, you know, that satisfaction out of a bit of creativity, making something from start to finish. But I guess we figure trades to be a little something more to women. Um, you know, they can provide that sort of financial independence from a coercive relationship. Even stuff like providing a pathway out of the poverty cycle, we see it as so much more for women. You know, being able to show that the trades are more than just, you know, for men women can show that, you know, we can do this too, that it is something, you know, that they can bring a lot of value to, um, not just in the work, but also to workplaces as well. Which leads to the question of the big issue of uh, sexual harassment, uh, actual work culture that uh, needs to change. Now, it's obvious that if you want to change it, you have to have um, more people uh, represented by uh, by the group, right? Because otherwise the uh, dominant group can just walk all over people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it really relies on having having those, you know, leaders in the workplace, um, often male leaders standing up and just sort of setting the tone for the culture. But also it really does rely on the employer taking the initiative to provide training um, I know women on site, for instance, are running a great program at the moment um, on gender violence, workplace gender violence. So it really is um, the employer's responsibility to step up. And, you know, it's not just a case of, oh, let's start hiring women. It's about starting to provide a real supportive environment um, and making sure that the women aren't going to be, you know, having a really rough time because we know that sexual harassment does happen in these sorts of workplaces, and it is the employer's responsibility, first and foremost, to, you know, step up and set the tone for that. Well, actually, you brought up something really important, which is the um, uh, several-pronged attack that's been going on in changing the space, the workspace for women, right? Uh, So there's the work that you do where you're going to do an expo uh, to show a case or a, a range of trades, I presume. That's what you're going to do, right, on March the 1st? Yeah, absolutely. So the expo is really about providing that last step in the Women in Trades project. So we've got a whole bunch of women who are now keen on getting a job. 
Um, and it's really about providing that um, connection because we know that women don't have that informal connection through footy clubs or cricket clubs that boys might currently have. So it's really about creating um, that link to some great employers who are doing some good stuff in the space. Um, and it'll be, yeah, all trades. Um, we'd obviously love to really promote the manufacturing trade. Um, and we're going to be doing that through little tool workshops. Um, we'll also have um, some careers practitioners there, the skills and job centres, um, and a range of different support services as well. Um, so it's a whole, it's an all-rounder expo, I guess, um, more than just jobs. So women at all stages, um, in their journey of finding a job are welcome to come along, whether that be coming along to have your resume touched up or actually to sit down, have an interview and hopefully get a job on the day. Oh, well, that's really interesting. I'll go back to the previous question, which is that many prongs that are being put together to make that work safe. Uh, we've been seeing, we see uh, the different campaigns, but you're bringing it to uh, together. Uh, so the campaign to... Uh, ensure that um, that uh, uh, legislation included uh, responsibility of employers over sexual harassment. That uh, you know that 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 was uh, one of the keys to uh, the um, recent uh, legislation. Uh, that was uh, you know the respect campaign. Uh, it was uh, pushed aside by the Morrison government, but it was always a central part of the legislation that had to be there. And then, of course, there's uh, other things like I know that the CFMEU, for example, went to court over um, the issue of uh, female toilets on the ground. So from all these different uh, areas, uh, people are working towards making the broader uh, workplace for women in trades more uh Safe, uh, safer and uh, more more possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the I know other that one was terribly long winded, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of work's being done in so many different areas. I think more recently, um, we've been in Trades Hall. We've been pushing to end non-disclosure agreements um, in regards to sexual harassment. I think that'll be absolutely massive at the moment. You know, you can be working in one of these workplaces and, you know, something terrible like that can happen to you and you can be forced to have to close your mouth about it for the rest of your life, which is just absolutely disgusting, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, all these different bits of work that are being done by the union movement, it's just incredible um, and it really is making a difference. Yeah. Now, the other thing that you pointed out was that you're talking about young ones, but you're also talking about mature, you're directing it to, to mature-aged women uh, for potential trade work, right? Yeah, so we'll have a bit of a mix. Um, so we'll have, yeah, obviously your mature-aged women who will be coming um, and looking for predominantly a job. Um, but we've also got some schools coming through as well because it's really important um, that we're getting down in those young years um, and trying to, you know, make a real systemic change about, you know, how young people look towards their careers. We know that um, women will start ruling out career options as early as grade five, which is just absolutely insane given that, you know, most sorts of of initiatives really only target, you know, year 12 and onwards when we're thinking about careers. Um, so, yeah, we, we thought we'd really 
try to bring some schools along. Um, and they'll be So primary schools like, you're talking about? No, nah, we've been doing work with primary schools. For this expo, it'll be um, sort of year nine onwards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll sort of be, be targeting that structured workplace learning um, one day a week where they might want to go out with an employer <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, and do a bit of work with them. Um, but also, yeah, mature age women as well. Um, of all ages, um, we've had women over the age of 50, of course, um, who've wanted a career change, um, and it's never too late. Mm. Oh, this is very interesting because you're really getting to the nitty-gritty of um, society's um, makeup, aren't you, <laughs> when you start doing <laughs> this work? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? All, all the things I've learnt, uh, and I haven't been on the project that long, it's only been about nine months, and I've learnt just a huge amount um, about all this sort of stuff and things you don't even think of, really. Mm. And there's a lot that, as you said, the informal networks aren't there, but you're creating them. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and especially providing that link to good employers who are doing um, some good work in the space of supporting women, whether that be mentoring programs or they are undergoing training, all that sort of stuff in the workplace. So they're not um, just your employees where you're going to be thrown in and you're going to be the only woman on the floor. Um, these are some really great places um, that, you know, we definitely recommend women um, to look for a job in. Um, tell me, um, uh, tell my listeners the uh, time, the date, how they get involved. Yeah, so um, they can sign up via Eventbrite, um, come along. Um, it'll go for three hours, so from 10 to 1 on Wednesday. Um, so the first hour will be all your workshops, all that sort of stuff. Uh, the second hour will be a panel discussion and then the third hour will be um, the jobs. So sign up um, or register via the AMWU website um, to come along. And where is it going to be? It's going to be at Broadmeadows Town Hall. All right, good. So people can get there by train. Yeah, absolutely. There'll also be um, parking um, like right around the corner um, of the shops. So, yeah, there'll be plenty of parking there. And, um, yeah, it's a good convenient spot if you want to get the train as well. Thanks for getting up in the morning and talking to me. Although, uh, getting up early is probably what you do. <laughs> yeah, no, look, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. All right. It's your time.
in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. We're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've got... Uh, uh, I think I've got the right number. No, that's not it. Is that you, Naomi? Everything's going wrong for me this morning. Just I'm going to send you off on another uh, bit of um, music and perhaps I can get uh, a... uh
Yeah, you're back with me and Naomi. G'day, how are you? Hey, I'm well, thanks. How are you? <laughs> a bit of a glitch, but that's okay. Um, really important stuff that you guys are doing. You've got, you're called for a community uh, camp to organise between uh, 14th of April to the 17th of April at Newcastle. Uh, and uh, it's a Rising Tide Newcastle event. Can you tell my listeners about what's going on, Naomi? Yeah. So we are gathering in Newcastle to target the world's biggest coal port. Um, it's the single largest source of emissions um, on this continent and represents about 1% of global emissions. So it's an extraordinary contribution to the climate crisis um, in one site. And we think what we need um, to start to shift the politics nationally around the climate conversation and the need for urgent and transformative action is a mass disruptive movement. And if there's going to be a place on the continent where we have the greatest potential to build that type of movement, we think it's in Newcastle um, because it is such a significant contribution to the crisis and it's relatively accessible um, for Australia's population centres. Yeah, it's, it's been targeted before, raising people's awareness of uh, how key it is in the uh, coal industry uh, in Australia. And uh, as you pointed out, that uh, when that coal gets burned, it uh, actually uh, is uh, greater than um, all of the other stuff that we emit. Yeah, well... Um, it has been for a long time. Um, I think last year, because of the flood, there was a, a dip in um, the amount of coal exported. But, yeah, it hovers around the, at the equivalent amount of Australia's domestic emissions. Um, yeah. Some years it's been greater than our total emissions combined. Some, some years it's been a bit less. But, yeah, it's in the order of magnitude of, like, every single um, source of emissions domestically, like every car on the road, every um, household, every industry, um, all of the land clearing, like... It's, it's an enormous um, source of emissions that gets exported through this port. And um, so, oh, sorry. Go, go. Oh, you asked me about, um, I think you were asking me about past um, focus on the area. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we there was a group, Rising Tide, that started in 2005 to focus on um, this source of emissions. And, uh, yeah, we were one of the first groups to start doing non-violent direct action on coal uh, targets um, and we were really active here until 2012 when everyone started doing um, work in um, different climate spheres and, and research and yeah we just regathered and relaunched um, late last year because we saw a really big like important gap um, that in the climate movement ecosystem that we felt needed to be filled and that was um, radical but inclusive and diverse um, actions to demand transformative change. Well, um, you, uh, Labor has said that climate targets are an important shift from the coalition's denial and delay, but that's not enough, is it? No, I mean, words are cheap. <laughs> absolutely not. Like, it, I mean, it is an important shift, but... But we're facing the destruction of, um, you know, potentially of humanity. Like the everything is at stake here, and the, facing the scale of um, threat that we are, those sort of shifts are negligible. It, you can't have piecemeal reform to deal with the climate emergency. 
we, we need to transform our economy and our society. And starting with not expanding fossil fuels, not opening new coal mines or gas fields, not expanding existing ones. And, and Labor is still allowing that to happen. So, yeah, some targets and some, some policies that are not necessarily going to make much difference anyway. It's, it's definitely not good enough. Uh, you, you've got demands, haven't you? We demand state and federal governments do what? Uh, we're demanding that um, there is no um, expansion of the coal industry. Um, that's our first demand, very simple one at this point in history. Um, our second demand is that the coal export industry, the Newcastle coal port, shut by 2030. Um, and our third demand is that um, no worker or community gets left behind in this process of transition. Mm. And, and it might surprise people that uh, the uh, port is still expanding and is expecting to continue its plans to 2048. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it is quite shocking. Um, there was a, a coal mine in the Hunter Valley that feeds the Newcastle coal export port that um, was approved for a massive expansion last year and there's another one on the table um, currently. Uh, so, yeah, they in- intend on exporting coal from this port um, right up until the time when um, the world is supposed to be um, moving or, or achieving net zero emissions. So it's really inconsistent with a safe climate future, uh, what they're planning to do here. Can you tell us about uh, uh, what people can expect on uh, if they come and, like they'll bring their camping gear, I guess, and involve yeah. themselves, yeah. Yeah, um, so people have already started registering from um, Melbourne, Canberra, Brizzy, um, and of course lots of people from um, Sydney and Newcastle. Um, so um, it'll be a great gathering of um, people that are deeply concerned about the climate crisis and really wanting to get more involved and um, contribute to a powerful movement um, to demand change. Um, and we have a beautiful site. It's a, um, it's a scout camp just um, 20 minutes outside of Newcastle in the bush by the beach. So, um, yeah, lovely that we'll be gathering on Warramai and Awabakal country um, people can bring their camping gear or there's actually some dorm beds available as well. Um, yeah, and four days of um, living in community, um, building networks and relationships um, and strategizing about how we can ramp up our power and start to win. Um, so we've got exciting speakers um, like Frontline Voices and uh, scientists from the um, Climate Council that we're ex- really excited to hear from. And um, one of the days will be a big um, mass nonviolent action. That's on the Sunday, yeah. And also yeah. You're, cause, you're calling for, you're seeking 10,000 people to plus to take a climate defence pledge, which is a really interesting strategy. Yeah. So we think that we, in order to shift the politics in the time we have available, it, it needs to be... Uh, transformative movement and we need mass numbers in order to achieve that. Um, We need the diversity that comes with those numbers as well. So we've put out a call um, for 10,000 plus people to pledge to participate or support those who are um, taking destructive action against the coal export industry uh, in Newcastle. 
um, at the world's biggest coal port. So the idea is that there's safety in numbers, um, there's inspiration in that um, power of those numbers and um, people can feel like they're part of something that is really going to make change. So we ask people to sign up on our website, which is risingtide.org.au, um, and you can add a photo and a testimony if you like, or you can um, just take the pledge and add your details. And we invite people to participate in actions along the way that will help build the momentum until we have the, um, the numbers to um, materially disrupt the industry and have the power to win on our demands. Um, but people are also welcome to take the pledge and wait until we have that critical mass and come when, we're, when we put the call out that we have um, those really significant numbers to make the change that we think will be possible when we do. Yeah, it, uh, it's a do-or-die moment in a sense. Uh, uh, one of the uh, conversations that's been happening is that uh, to be effective, uh, all the different uh, people, uh, like-minded people and groups, need to actually network. And this is a perfect uh, an act in concert. And this is a perfect moment, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think we need to think about um, change as an as an ecosystem approach. Um, learn from nature there and um, work out how we can cooperate and collaborate as much as possible. But, um, yeah, I do think that in that ecosystem um, framework, um, this type of grassroots, diverse and disruptive action um, fills an essential niche. And um, so anyone that um, wants to do something that um, potentially is the most powerful thing that um, an individual could do to be to join a, um, a non-violent, um, resistance movement, um, then I think this is the the place to to be. Now, can you just talk a little bit on the third day, uh, that's Sunday, the 16th of April, there is going to be what you call an inclusive, non-violent, direct action protest. Um, this is important because uh, it's a provocation in a sense because of the amount of uh, draconian laws against protests that have been uh, 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 going on to the books, especially in New South Wales, I have to say, but uh, not exclusively New South Wales. Um, can you talk to that? Uh, yeah, so we're hoping, hoping to um, attract hundreds of people to this event, um, including those who have been participating in um, climate camp in the days before, but also um, hundreds of uh, local supporters that might not come to the whole gathering but will join us for the protest. Um, we are going to be um, targeting one of the um, coal export terminals that is um, near to town. Um, and part of the part of our intention here is to create a striking image and to, to um, share a message, like a declaration um, of intention that we're going to be returning with um, thousands more people and friends. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're um, we. I can't really, I can't really give all of the details of what we're planning, actually. Um, but no, that's um, wise. We we definitely will be um, like making sure that it's really safe for um, for a whole diversity of people. That it's fun and colourful. Um, yeah, we're we're planning like music and um, yeah, there'll be speeches. Um, there'll be a march involved, um, and yeah, um, 
it should be really empowering and fun day and um, help to build momentum uh, for bigger actions to follow. So I will also mention that um, we haven't publicly announced that um, yet. I guess it's um, hearing it first on 3CR. Um, yeah, Rising Tide is planning to host a um, two-day blockade of the um, coal port in November, November 25th and 26th. Um, it will be the 12th um, flotilla blockade um, of the port, um, but we've never done it for two days before. So this is a, um, a clear escalation. Um, and we're hoping that thousands of people will be participating in that event. Mm, that uh, uh, is very similar to the uh, concepts coming out of the Franklin um, at blockades that were so successful. Let's hope this is successful too. Um, let's yeah. let's go back to the um, uh, the, th- the last demand, which was that ensure nobody is left behind as Australia moves beyond coal. Um, this means government-led support for new jobs, industries and training for coal workers and coal mining communities. This isn't just words. Uh, uh, down in the Hunter Valley, as well as over in a key uh, coal mining area in Western Australia, a lot of work has been done to uh, bring communities forward out of their coal past. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really brilliant work that's being done by a variety of organisations in the Hunter, um, learning from yeah um, that example in Western Australia and other examples from around the world um, where transition has been done well, but it needs to be a planned transition. There needs to be... Um, like work with the community, collaborative approach, and there needs to be government support, um, yeah, for all of those things like retraining um, or redundancies or, like, investment in new industries. There are so many opportunities um, in the Hunter region uh, to create new industries and job opportunities um, for the community here, and um, the government needs to be um, leading on that and not just waiting for the industry to suddenly pack up um, like is already occurring and um, and people are facing job losses without the support that they deserve. So we we can't allow that to continue and um, and we need this to be an orderly transition because it is inevitable and it's necessary and, um, and it's just not just or acceptable that um, workers and communities are left high and dry through this process. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, uh, act- environmental activists... Uh, are, are seen as the uh, the enemy of workers. Oh, that's the conversation that's been created. But in actual fact, uh, with the idea that it's the moneyed class, the financiers, uh, that are actually the ones responsible for uh, the economy working. But in actual fact, uh, they are actually responsible for putting money into their shareholders and increasing their profits. Not the same thing. Uh, no, um, no, not at all. There's like I think that um, this issue has been politicised um, tragically, and um, they're yeah, we're really um, on the same side. And um, no, we just <laughs> we just we just want to see um, stable jobs for the future that that aren't affecting the the planet. Um, everybody deserves that to to have a stable um, job with good conditions that is not um, destroying destroying the planet. Thanks for talking to us today, uh, Naomi. And uh, 
it's a big call out to the uh, Newcastle uh, Environment Camp. Go to the um, right, what, what, t- Rising yeah, Tide. Rising, yeah, risingtide.org.au. You can find the link to um, register um, there or you can go on Facebook. It's, um, called the, um, it's called Camp for Climate Action. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks, Annie. Interested in real community resistance to extractivism around the globe? Beehive Design Collective's Art of Resistance World Tour from Turtle Island, Canada brings us complex political discourse in March through stories, murals, music and more. Join Liz Downs from the Rainforest Action Group for insights from her recent trip to Ecuador where indigenous and peasant groups are fighting back against big mining and how their wins can inspire the global movement. March the 2nd at Black Spark, Northcote, starting 6pm and followed by live tunes and panel discussion. Entry free or by donation. More info at AidWatch or Melbourne Rainforest Action Group on Facebook. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review held a workforce summit Wednesday to sort out the common problem restraining the economy and therefore attacking the common good, lazy, avaricious workers. Thus, all workforce participants were represented, from caring employers to the caring business class to bosses to bosses to the caring business class to caring employers, eliminating any need for the cause of all their troubles, the lazy avaricious workers, to be represented by other than the caring business class because they were, are, quite capable of representing the ingrates. Indeed, no far, far better than their ignorant workforce what's good for their ignorant workforce. Although, in order to give it a little credibility, we might have thought they'd invite a token union official. We're not asking them to have a common worker in their midst, for God's sake, but say a shopping the workers' association official, but no, Manon. The workers were represented by the great corporates, and we discovered lazy, avaricious workers are so lazy and so avaricious that we must import good workers happy to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay. And the socialist government is a barrier to this important advance. Restrictive barriers like expecting them to be paid. And no less a fighter for the rights of workers, our very own corporate icon, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, bemoaned the fact that inflation was hurting the economy. Wage inflation. Along with that eternal problem, productivity, or rather lack of. That impediment to their equally eternal desire to solve the problems of slow wage growth that so disturbed them. And great retailer, Worst Farmers' chief exploit humans resources officer, said evil unions were seeking as much as a crippling 4% increase in bargaining negotiations when we're showing the restraint evil unions and workers lack by restricting our price increases to, in some cases, as little as 10 to 12%, presumably per week. Meaning poor worse farmers, indeed all caring employers, will be forced to string out bargaining endlessly while, need we say this, negotiating in good faith. And bargaining could be concluded quickly if only the evil unions and workers didn't want things. For worse farmers, it could get worse. 
that bloody retail and fast food workers union might get involved and claim sacrilegiously that wages should at least match inflation. And all caring employers, led again by bloody huge profits and worse farmers, further bemoan the socialist threat that workers doing the same job should receive the same remuneration. Same job, same pay for labour hire workers, for instance. Bloody huge profits declaring having to pay workers would disrupt its business. And worse farmers expressed major concerns that legislation on casual workers could prevent workers and caring employers from maintaining flexible work arrangements. There's that word again. Flexibility is right up there with productivity in caring employers' lexicon for making life so much better for the workers they so care about. They all agreed there needed to be some genuine consultation with business about all these matters. And with unions, we asked. When they recovered, they pointed out they had held their workforce summit quite successfully without evil union interruption, so no. Consultation is also in their lexicon. They didn't consult us on tax changes that affect the taxes we don't pay, they complained regularly. Despite all that, good news for workers though, at the end of the day, the caring business class concluded their workforce summit had done a good job at representing the workforce. It's not often, in fact it just doesn't happen, that the caring business class get a laugh out of the week that was. To be honest, I suspect no one does unless she, he appreciates bad, bad jokes, but this week... The Nab Your Money Bank Supremo, Ross McScrewen Customers, in announcing record profits yet again, said rising interest rates were good for the banks. Uh, then Ross, we mused, why not take a bit less yourself and give a bit of the windfall to your customers? <laughs> well, what a reaction. I've never seen a man laugh so much. He fell to the ground, grasping his belly, rolling and rolling and rolling with uncontrollable laughter. Loud guffaw after loud guffaw. Ah, I followed up. Ah, was that a yes or a no, Ross? He was unable to answer, just guffaw. So I thought it wiser not to ask him why it was also good that banks did not apply the higher rates they charge to the interest rates they don't pay depositors. However, the which bank, which used to be our bank, Supremo, Matt, coming for your money, helped us a bit with, we have to be competitive and we have to strike the right balance across a range of products. Whatever that meant. I said he was only helping us a bit. Our Indigenous comrades launched the Voice campaign Thursday and as if to celebrate the occasion, a voice sounding, I must admit, somewhat slow-witted, could be heard in the background. Detail. You know, like detail. Oh, are you Constable Duffer? I, you know, think so. What do you mean, you, you think so? I think so, I'm pretty certain. I'll, I'll just check. Susan! He called to Deputy Caring Business Class Party Supremo Susan Lees and Dregs. Am I Constable like Duffer? Yes, I keep telling you, Peter, yes. Thought so, yes, like. And here, the newly launched campaign handed him a file, are the answers to your 15 queries. Detail, like you know, I, you know, need more like 
detail. But the truth of was, people need, you know, like detail. But but it's all there. I will not, you know, have my campaign for like detail derailed by, you know, like detail. Sponsorship quite properly derailed at the Adelaide Festival, which has shown its true anti-Semitic colours by inviting two Palestinian non-people writers to speak, views which must never be heard, and thanks to the vigilance of and pressure of the true Blue Zionist lobby, a major sponsor has withdrawn. Palestinian writers, non-people, anti-Semitic. Although, but uh, hang on, that, that means they're anti themselves because they are Semitic. Wrong, the Zionist lobby corrected us. They are landless non-people and therefore being non-people, they can't be Semitic. And even if they were, which they're not, they would criticise Zion and any criticism of Zion is anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, lots of non-people were massacred as Zion-trained killers attacked them in the non-land to which they were banished when Zion stole their country, rendering them landless. Uh, Yes, you talk about terrorists, you obviously mean these sinister personal arsenals of trained killers invading, terrifying, slaughtering and destroying these people's, sorry, sorry, non-people's property. As non-people, they have no right to property. No, the non-people are the terrorists. Those trained killers represent peace, liberty, freedom and democracy. Interesting, yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review devoted six pages to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and not even a word, not a mention of Zion invading and massacring the innocent. That presumably... Uh, would be anti-Semitic. Question. What does singer Della Reese and former Socialist Party MP Theo Leoponis have in common? Answer. Bet you got it. What a difference a day makes. Della's big hit. And Wednesday, Thursday, Leoponis discovered just how spot on that is. Wednesday mornings, Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, for which he is a regular deep-thinking political observer, Theo yet again pushed his true blue Aussie must-go nuclear to save the planet push. As a lobbyist, we wonder who his clients... No, no, we won't go there. Indeed, he asserted, nuclear power will come to true blue Aussie. Then Thursday... Poor Theo was in the news pages, nailed by the State Anti-Corruption Authority for misusing his position on the Metropolitan Planning Authority to lobby for a $31 million development, the developer pouring money into Theo's MP daughter's political campaign. Poor Theo also forced to resign from the state trustees, presumably for diminishing trust in his independence in Theo, although some cruel souls might say it couldn't couldn't diminish any further. We, we could suggest it couldn't happen to a nicer. Except here's Paul Lay upon us trying to save the world. The inevitable nuclear energy will, in his words, help us to save the planet's climate. See? all altruistic, selfless, and giving us a choice. What will get the planet first, the climate or the radioactive waste? 
In a major shopping strip, noticed almost every business had the rainbow colours up, showing on World Pride Day how the caring business class just loves gays. Presumably as long as they've got plenty of money. And as so many AFL women footballers are proud of their sexual preferences, we still await the first AFL male footballer to share their pride. Finally, tribute to one of, if not, the greatest defender of the battlers, daily bemoaning the struggles against cost of living increases, sensible advice on how to reduce those costs, denouncing the greedy who continue to inflate inflation. Yes, the worker's friend, Lord Rupert of Wapping, particularly through his tabloid media, including P1 yesterday, socialist sticky fingers, your money is our honey. The poor attacked yet again by a rapacious government compounding price rises by greedy capitalists. Then turn the page, P2. Lord Rupert announcing as of Monday the price for his products will increase by 12%. Must be the labour costs of the lazy avaricious workers ripping him off. Owen P8 headline, greedy businesses driving inflation. Nothing but consistent, Lord Rupert. Shame socialists. Shame greedy capitalists. Shame lazy avaricious ripping off workers. Brave Lord Rupert. Bravo, Lord Rupert. I was going to say viva, Lord Rupert, but at his age with a new girlfriend, that's, uh, that's touch and go, which I'll do. Good morning. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my hand back You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station, and we were just listening to Kevin who came back from his lawn adventure, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. The uh, story we're going to look at now is a really sobering one. It's uh, what's going on in Palestine at the moment. Uh, There was a general strike in the West Bank on Thursday, after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and injured nearly 500 in a military raid in the city of Nablus. Now, uh, here locally, we've been hearing about uh, uh, the Zionist lobby pushing to get rid of uh, two uh, authors, uh, Suzanne Abul-Hawa and Mohammed Al-Kurd, from the uh, speakers list at the Adelaide uh, Writers' Festival. Uh, we've also been hearing about uh, an SBS journalist uh, being um, suspended for uh, a tweet from 10 years ago, which, as there's this remarkable push to uh, redefine uh, what anti Semitism is throughout our cultural. Uh, and university landscapes. I uh, caught up with Dr. Randa Adel Fadar, an author herself, uh, around the issue of uh, 
um, the Zionist approach to uh, Palestinian voice suppression in Australia? There's uh, news coming out of Adelaide uh, Writers' Festival that uh, a number of well-known Palestinian writers have been targeted by a Zionist campaign saying that they shouldn't be on the program because they're anti-Semitic and, in fact, it would seem as if purely because they're Palestinian. And um, despite the... uh, um, uh, the, uh, uh, organisers uh, retaining them on the program, there still seems to be uh, pressure. Can you talk to us a little bit about what now appears to be almost like a, a Zionist cult that's infiltrating um, uh, the choices that are being made in cultural areas in Australia? Look, the um, the uh, sort of the efforts to silence and, pal- and censor Palestinians have you know, have always been there since the resistance. Um, and even looking at sort of uh, documents that I've accessed um, from activists here from the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, this, there is nothing new about what's happening here. What's, what is, I guess, new is the, the desperation and um, panic mode that Zionists are in now um, to shut down absolutely any criticism of Israel and and the reason that is happening on this kind of level and escalation of hysteria is because there is social media showing us, you know, live what is happening. There is no way you can deny what is happening. You know, the most prestigious human rights organizations in the world are coming out concluding that Israel is practicing crimes against humanity, apartheid. So the crimes of Israel are there nobody can deny them and so the, the the attempts to stifle and censor Palestinians have really reached um, new levels with the way that um, you know definitions very disingenuous definitions of anti-semitism now are being used and weaponized against people in um, academia in the media and what we are seeing really is the desperation as Palestinians continue to speak and their allies um, to to censor and the way that that is done the only means available to is to use the weapon the the slur the smear the threat of anti-semitism um, and what's so dangerous is how stretched that definition has become um, and the way that the media have lapped that up and politicians and and not critically engaged with what is actually what speech is actually being threatened and silenced here because it's if, if you look very closely even at the casual way, the language, the casual language in which allegations of Semitism have been levelled, you can really see, you know, that things like, for example, one of the Palestinian writers, Muhammad al-Kurd, um, in reports about this whole controversy, um, has been described as an anti-Semitic, as, you know, as a critic of Zionism, um, as hostile to Israel. Since when is hostility towards a state, let alone an apartheid state, um, you know, anti-Semitism or racism. So what's actually, you know, being criticised here is, you know, the language of people who are resisting violence. Uh, and again, there's nothing new there, but the, what's infuriating for Palestinians is the way that this is just done in a very casual and uncritical way and accepted by the establishment. 
Yeah, because uh, there's been uh, an absolute uh, increase in the murder and uh, the uh, uh, taking of land uh, over the last month Mm -hmm. um, in uh, Palestine. Um, You know, you'd say that in a funny kind of a way, this is uh, like um, trying to divert attention away, like you say, from that murder and land theft. Um, and the breaking mm. of international law, the casualness. It's quite interesting because, in actual fact, the Palestinians are Semitic. So to be called anti-Semitic is quite a bizarre charge, isn't it? Well, I know I know people often sort of use that, but I think that the, the trap with that is that we start to fall into sort of literal definitions and semantics, um, and it kind of. Uh, you know, it, it kind of detracts from, I mean, a- when we talk about anti-Semitism, it's a kind of word where there's no actual correct definition that I can say you're not using this definition instead of that or you're not being um, intellectually sort of or historically accurate. The, the point is that it's um, it's been, its meaning has been collapsed to, to, to allow so many things to fall under it. And the main sort of... Um, you know, weapon that it that it's used as is to shut down any criticism of Israel, and and that's the issue for Palestinians. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is uh, just by me bringing that up means I've diverted attention from what's the real real problem. I mean, I remember um, being interested in um, the way the Israeli state has assumed or taken over, tries to take the history of the original peoples there as their own entirely without yeah. taking into account anybody else who's who lives there or has lived there in the past. Well yes and, and, and we you know we're having this discussion on stolen land in a in a in a place that has constantly tr- um, attempted to rewrite history because that's what settler colonies do. They use myths in the beginning and mythologies about, you know, whether it's an empty land or a land for without a people for, you know, for a people with people without a land, these sorts of myths first. And then as the truth comes out and as there are um, capacities for oppressed people to to actually speak truth to power, then it started to be a revision of history and a rewriting of history and a denial of history. And so this is the constant game that Zionists play. You know, um, on the one hand, there are those who deny the Nakba. On the other, there are those who justify it. <laughs> um, and those goalposts keep changing in the Zionist playbook. Um, but we're very familiar with them. And, and you know, Palestinians and their allies you know, the, the mobilization of support, support for Palestinians continues to grow globally. And again, this explains the hysterical reaction from the Zionist lobby um, because we are, we are winning the, the moral war. We are, we are winning, you know, the hearts and minds of people who can see plainly what is happening. The other thing is that um, it should be made clear that uh, Zionist ideology is not Judaism. Um, and I, I've been struck by having met people of Zionist persuasion in Australia that it has this, the um, system that they work with uh, sort of infects people's personal and political power, the individual's power, because they require them to be completely um, loyal without question and it's got a, a smack of Opus Day or the Masons in a funny kind of way. Is, is that your reflection on this? I don't know. I mean, I haven't, you know, 
my expertise is not how sort of the Zionist lobby and the Zionist sort of, um, you know, how they operate um, within themselves. Um, my experience is how they operate against Palestinians. Um, and for, for me, it's, you know, it's something that is problematic, not just in terms of the hardcore Zionists, but also liberal Zionists. And that's probably, you know, always going to be the case when it comes to anti-racism efforts. There are those who are always going to be on the extreme end. And then there are those who profess to be progressive. And so you see this, for example, among a lot of Zionists who will talk about um, sovereignty for Indigenous people here um, and, you know, get on board things like the voice or treaty or, um, you, you know, the Uluru Statement of the Heart with absolutely no sense of, you know, um, self-awareness about how ridiculous it is for a Zionist to be even using that language when they are defending a settler colony in Israel. So for me, those are the more problematic people um, because, unfortunately, they seduce a lot of the left. Um, for example, Maurice Schwartz, who is the publisher of Black Ink Books and the Saturday Paper, where supposedly progressive people publish and um, you know consume that news thinking that it is progressive politics. And yet he is an anti-Palestinian. Um, so that so there are many sort of uh, there's a spectrum there when it comes to our work um, and the kind of solidarities that we need to build and for people to confront the fact that Zionism can come in all forms and those on the left, you know, the progressive liberal left, um, need to be called to account and held accountable for their d double standards. Yeah, because um, it's not just the two writers in um, Adelaide. Uh, it's also an SBS journalist mm. who has been put under the pump because he's been um, for a tweet that he made 10 years ago, which just seems quite bizarre, has been uh, suspended. And also in uh, Wollongong, the university has decided on a a definition of anti-Semitism uh, without any consultation with even the uh, the uh, academics who uh, teach in that area. Well, yes, well, and I come from um, Macquarie University who also passed that, who accepted and adopted that definition um, with, you know, not that much publicity about it at all. I don't even think most academics know that the university did that. Melbourne University has also adopted it um, and did so refusing to meet with Palestinians who sought meetings. Um, and so what we're seeing here, like when I started, we're seeing in, in many spheres there which profess to be about freedom and freedom of speech and, you know, the, the circulation of ideas and academic integrity, we are seeing this shutting down. And it's not just using it as a blunt instrument for, for example, what happened to the SBS journalist, Esam Al-Ghalib, who was suspended. Um, it's not just used in that way. It also has a chilling effect. And I think that is the more insidious impact. Um, and even with Adelaide Festival, Writers' Festival, the idea is, well, if we can't get every Palestinian, you know, out of that festival, if we can't get every Palestinian to stop 
you know, speaking out, at least we can make enough noise that a next festival will think twice before inviting a Palestinian because of the controversy, because yeah. of what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that is um, the more insidious impact that we need to really fight against constantly. You are. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've just been listening to Dr. Randa Ad Abdel Fada about uh, what's been going on within our cultural sphere in regards to Palestinians uh, raising their voices. Um, we're now moving right along to having a chat with Ralph Edwards. G'day, Ralph. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, we, we've got you uh, this morning on Saturday, on Saturday breakfast on 3CR because you've been working ever since you left the uh, hallowed halls of CFMEU here in Victoria. You've been working on a, a project, a podcast project called Creatures of the Industry. What have you learnt? Um, everyone's got the same story, but everything's different. It seems a bit of a conundrum, but everyone has experienced the same things in their time in the construction industry, but everyone has little little tweaks and little variations which make it really interesting. And I must say that I've found that the adage six degrees of separation is probably an exaggeration. Three degrees of variation... might be enough because so many people come across the landscape and disappear and then come back and they're related to someone and they're friends with someone else. But it is an extraordinarily uh, diverse but very intimate community, the uh, construction industry, and I've spent most of my life in it and uh, I'm still surprised and uh, I find it very, very interesting and, and challenging to try and capture all the nuances that, that that are there in the industry, and some of the stories are extraordinary. Yeah, there would be. Um, now, you've been a uh, strong character yourself in the industry. Do you find that there's some people that like to talk to you, and other people who, you know, have got a bone to pick with you? No. Uh, just well, they're too polite. That, no, I think that most people I talk to have, like me, achieved retirement. And that makes you, I think, reflective. And so, uh, without going into detail, there's I've a couple of interviews where maybe the people who I'm interviewing have not always been uh, simpatical, let's say. And the consequence is that you go in a bit uh, anxious about not upsetting them, but at the same time trying to talk to them about their story and and the, the story they're part of the story of the industry. But what I've found is that even people I've had strong disagreements with over the journey are at a point where they're reflective. They actually want to talk about the industry, construction, building and construction industry. Not just their role in it, but how it affected their lives and, and what they've experienced and what it means to to other people. But people are quite reflective. I, I, that's been one of the highlights for me of the 
the episode so far. Um, you, as you point out uh, quite uh, well there, that uh, you all have achieved, achieved retirement, but some people in the, the journey haven't. So that's a, a key thing, isn't it? Well, a number of the uh, interviews for the podcast, it is often necessary uh, to put a little bit of a warning on the front that people are actually going to talk about people who died and the circumstances in which they died, uh, not just in industrial incidents like the Westgate Bridge, but also sometimes uh, people take their lives. The industry is unfortunately uh, noteworthy for a quite high number of people who suicide. Um, whether that's a consequence of the industry or it's just simply that they come to the industry because they find a home but it doesn't necessarily provide everything. There's, there's a whole series of issues that, that people raise and uh, the number of people who have died in the industry and more, in one way, more significantly, the number of people who have been maimed and, and have spent miserable years afterwards uh, as a consequence of those sorts of uh, incidents is extraordinary too. And then you hear a story where you'd never heard before and it is amazing. And one of those was a, an interview I did with a bloke who I'd never met, never met, didn't know him, hadn't heard his name before, but... He went down on the Westgate Bridge. In fact, he was the uh, the Derek Crane driver who was actually lifting the, the section into place and he's the one who went down with his crane and somehow, not only did he live, but he kept driving cranes for the rest of his working life. Oh, my God. A bloke called Vince Rose. And he, went, he couldn't really go back to... The West Gate, that was too much for him. He ended up going to Queensland, but he drove cranes for the next 40 something years till he retired. And uh, I met him down at the uh, Westgate Memorial uh, last year, and it was his first time down. He had not come in over 50 years, but he decided he'd come for the sake of his, of his family and also catching up with some people. And he had the most amazing stories and the most positive attitude of any bloke I've ever met. He was just so happy to be alive and to have lived a life. <laughs> I was going to say, he cheated death. He cheated death extraordinarily. I mean, he literally went down with a crane the whole way, hit, hit the deck, and uh, I won't go into all the details. No, no, they have to go to the podcast here, I think. I yeah, guess. He, he lived... Despite horrific injuries, you know, he, people told him he, basically he wouldn't be uh, working again and all the rest of it. He ended up spending a, a life, got married, had kids, he's got grandkids. It's a fantastic story, very uplifting. <laughs> That's nice to hear. Um, also, uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, talking to people like Gorilla from uh, the Concrete Gang, there's been a lot of changes in the types of. Uh, language and uh, stories and how people live. There's been a lot of changes in the industry, haven't there? And society in general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
think the biggest change is the consistency of work. We have been in, I say, in this city simply because of the growth of the city. Um, we've been in a building boom for 20 years. Unprecedented, nothing like it has ever happened in the history of Melbourne. Uh, the building boom after the gold rush was quite extended and uh, 10 years at the top. And that's and going I'm back a bit. Yeah, but that's, why, that's in fact why my father's family came to, to Melbourne. They came to work. They didn't come for the gold. Mm. They came to build. And that has also occurred at different times since. Uh, the late 50s into the 60s, then again in the 80s, there was huge booms, but nothing like this. And the work was on-off. You could be working on a job and put in yeah. six, 12 months, and you'd get nothing for the next six or 12 months uh, because the industry just wasn't that big and there wasn't constant work. So people travelled a lot. People worked away from home. Uh, people moved into states for extended periods of time, went to West Australia to work on some of those, uh, the creation of those mines and that over there, and then they come back. Now you can basically come into the industry in your late teens, work your whole life in the industry, 40 years of age or something, never have had a day out of work, and the money's always been good. That is not an experience which previous generations had. And one of the probably one of the reasons why the, the podcast is of interest to younger people in the industry is to actually hear how it used to be. Yeah. And you know, things like public holidays. Public public holidays weren't paid up to the to the nineteen seventies. Mm. Mm. There are I mean, things that people take for granted. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a very different world. And the gorilla's right. The language is very different. All the little sayings that he has, happy as a fat spider and all, <laughs> those, all these things, which were all just normal conversation yeah. jargon. You know, it was... That is inexplicable to most people. But it is it is a different world. It's, it's constantly changed, and the industry in some ways is much better than it used to be, certainly in terms of the ways and conditions, which had to be fought for. A lot of people think it just sort of falls from heaven, but anyway, it is still good to go back and hear the sort of stories and the uh, incidents in people's lives which were quite, you know, traumatic in some cases and quite liberating in others. I mean... Well, uh, we have to... It's, we've come right to the edge of the end of the program. Uh, so quickly tell people how to get onto the program, uh, you know, your well, podcast, Creatures of the Industry. You go, you go to the webpage, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash totty. C-O-T-I, and uh, you can also communicate to us via our uh, email address, which is totty 
podcast at outlook.com. And, of course, Creatures of the Industry is the title that I took from uh, one of the sayings of the late and great John Cummins to describe people in the industry who were creatures of the industry, whether they were good bad people, bad people didn't really matter. They were part of the industry. They weren't flying in and flying out and grabbing what they can and disappearing. So the creatures of the industry covers a whole range of uh, people. Thanks for talking to us today, No worries, kid. Absolute pleasure. And that's the end of the program. And I have to go because I can't even tell you what we had on the program. You have to listen back. Sweet Summer Nights, Danny Tivelu. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We were dreaming about those summer nights You could never wish for Got enamored by the little things By the way you clean the heart Won't you dance across the greener sky Like you never had before Wrote a song just looking in your eyes And you left me wanting more Oh, now listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.